This is Water Law 101. I'm back with Mike Gallagher, Southwest Regional Manager for Ecology's Water Resources Program. Water Law 101 is meant to be an introductory level discussion of water law in Washington State. But even at the simplest level, managing water rights can be very complicated. Now, Mike, at the, the heart of your job is really a resource management job. This is really kind of an amazing balancing act that you have to do in order to manage this shared resource throughout the state. Uh, can, can you kind of give me some details on what it takes to manage our water resources? Sure. Thanks, Jimmy. So as I've mentioned, uh, water is managed in the state of Washington under the prior appropriation doctrine, first in time, first in right. So when we get a water right application, we have to balance that application with the existing use of water already in that particular watershed or from that particular aquifer, balanced with maybe an in-stream flow regulation, other water uses, the amount of annual rainfall, the amount of flow in that stream that's based on snowpack or not snowpack, and uh, the demand for the water, primarily our demand and our need for water is highest in the summertime when everyone wants a nice garden or a green lawn, when the supply, the stream flow, the aquifer water table is at its lowest. So there's, there's that balance as well. So we have to, when we allocate new water rights or transfer water rights, look at change applications, we have to balance the public interest with that and not just the public interest, but the environmental balance of that particular watershed. At the same time, first and foremost, my job at Ecology and our staff's job in the Southwest region, our first priority is to protect senior water rights. We have to ensure that those that already have water rights are gonna be protected or that supply is gonna be protected in perpetuity. And we're talking about, we all share this pie of water, whether it's us, the fish, the farmers, us, the homeowners or people that you know live in a house and rely on water for domestic purposes or we come to work and use the water for domestic purposes, you know, personal needs uh, at work. Um, the stores we shop at, uh, you know, to clean out the produce section, you know, that takes water. All of that is a shared resource and that pie doesn't get bigger, but we can't make the water supply bigger. All of this takes, uh, as, as you mentioned, Jimmy, it's a, it's a balancing act. Protection of senior water rights, meeting the public interest, meeting the desire of the applicant. In many cases, what can help is ways of conservation, you know, water use efficiency, water reuse, metering that water use, uh, mitigating for that water use by returning back to the stream or to a water source, what is impaired as a result of that new use. And we have to then kind of as a sidewinder into that is our reliance on the sciences of hydrogeology and fish biology because fish are an essential part of our culture, a part of our livelihood, a part of our resources here in Washington. And our aquifer conditions, you know, knowing the depth of the groundwater, the direction of groundwater flow, the ability of that aquifer to produce water, uh, the inner tie of groundwater and surface water, that requires the input of qualified hydrogeologists to help make these decisions to achieve this balancing act of managing water resources in the state. I've noticed another part of this balancing act is that ecology and water resources in particular 
aren't the only ones trying to weigh in on these decisions. I mean, you've got conservancy boards, you've got different sorts of industrial interests, agricultural interests, community interests, tribes. Is, is, is a part of your job being a lot like a diplomat? Absolutely, it's like being a diplomat because there are competing interests about this water. There are parties that uh, are wanting to protect what we have in the stream. There are parties, especially our Native American tribes here in Washington, that have treaty rights for fish from usual and custom fishing areas. Well, those usual custom fishing areas need streams full of water so that the fish can move up those streams to spawn and produce new fish that then come back to be harvested later on and to continue that fish cycle. Uh, those are protected by treaty rights and uh, they, in terms of prior appropriation doctrine, those rights, even though they're not quantified, they are senior to everything else because the tribes have been reliant on those water supplies and, and unquantified rights since time immemorial. We have a lot of uh, uh, senior water rights for uh, older agricultural enterprises and farms from the early 1900s that have been in continuous operation both in eastern Washington and western Washington that also rely on that water supply. And uh, uh, so that, that has to be protected. And competing with that, we have new demands on water uh, here in Washington. We have people moving in to Washington. In the course of my career in ecology, uh, Washington State has gone from being the 20th most populated state in America to being the 13th. People want to move here for a variety of reasons, whether it's economic opportunity, a nice climate, beautiful recreational opportunities, a varied geography and topography, all of these play into reasons why people move here. And uh, with that, people are desiring to move here. All of us, whether we're natives or uh, have come from somewhere else, need water. And uh, that trend is gonna likely continue for the foreseeable future. And we all have to balance that with this pie that we share. Water pie. <laughs> water pie. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to say it. All right, so tell me about some of the challenges that come with this balancing act. Well, look at uh, our state, and uh, we always talk about there's an eastern Washington and a western Washington, and that's primarily uh, climate-driven. Western Washington is generally wetter, um, and eastern Washington is generally drier. We have two different climates. We have west of the Cascades, this marine west coast maritime climate, East of the Cascades, we have a continental, uh, generally semi-arid climate. So that has to be balanced with the water needs, the growing water needs on both sides of the state. In addition, we have very varied geology, geological conditions. We have this from the last ice age or last series of ice ages 15,000 years ago and prior. We have this tremendous um, sandbox, sand and gravel box full of groundwater in Puget Sound uh, of aquifers, sand and gravel aquifers that have robust physical supplies of groundwater that have been used and will continue to be used for years. 
and uh, that's a wonderful supply of water. In eastern Washington, we have very vesicular layers of basalt formations that extend for several miles that uh, can result in having very productive wells that you, when you drive across eastern Washington between uh, uh, Vantage and Spokane on Interstate 90, you see those large crop circle irrigation sprinklers and they're pumping hundreds, if not in cases, a few thousand gallons a minute out of the ground to feed the water for that crop circle. That comes from a several hundred feet deep vesicular layer of basalt that's just full of groundwater. So you have that differing geological condition, but you have other geological conditions. I'll pick an example here locally in the Olympia area, just west of Olympia, there's a lake called Summit Lake. And you used to be able to do, apply for a water right to uh, take water out of the lake for your domestic supply. One can't do that anymore, but uh, you pretty much needed a piece of property on the lake to do that. But if your property was across the lake or away from the lake where you had to drill a well, there are a few cases where there are 600 foot dry holes. It's a very tight, dense bedrock material in the Black Hills and it doesn't yield a lot of groundwater. And so over a matter of miles, you know, a little more than maybe eight to 10 miles west of downtown Olympia, which is glacially deposited sand and gravel material where you have some very productive water wells. Um, in the Lacey Olympia Tumwater area, go eight miles west to Summit Lake and uh, you have a 600 foot dry hole. Um, so geology is very important. And then a third factor is we have these watersheds, water resource inventory areas. We have 62 of them that are kind of listed statewide, starting with the Nooksack as Raya 1, and I believe it's the Ponderay as Raya 62, and everything in between. But I'll focus on a couple of examples, one being the Raya 18, which is the Elwha Dungeness watershed. And so the Elwha River, west of Port Angeles, you know, drains the interior of the Olympic National Park, is a very robust river. Recently, two dams were removed from that river uh, to allow wild salmon to, to swim upstream and spawn, and that's a great success story. And the, even though not a lot of people live along the lower Elwha, there are aquifers kind of in connectivity with the Elwha River that are very productive aquifers for perhaps future growth someday. Move 15 miles to the east, Dungeness watershed, again, comes from near the interior of the Olympics, is a pretty robust river. The squim area is a nice uh, plain flat area with lots of agriculture, but it's an exceptionally, compared to most of western Washington, a pretty dry climate. Roughly 15 inches of rain a year is the driest spot in at least western Washington. In fact, they the farming up in Squim relies on surface water irrigation from the Dungeness River from water rights from the early 1900s uh, to provide that water. But that river is especially tenuous to flows. It can be flown as high as three, 400, 500 cubic feet per second during the spring snowmelt runoff of April, May, and early June. But this time of year uh, in August and September, it can be between uh, 60 to 100 cubic feet per second. And the fish trying to move upstream to uh, the hatchery where they were hatched from or the wild salmon that move upstream to spawn naturally are struggling to get up a stream when the flows are that low. So that's one watershed with two different rivers, two different stories, which I can extrapolate to 62 watersheds, 62 different stories. Each of these watersheds that we have has a different story 
in terms of water availability. So I've touched on different geology, a different precipitation pattern, wet west, dry east, 62 different watersheds, and then the final part of this balancing act of trying to make these decisions, these policy decisions, these regulatory decisions, these water right application decisions, are our state laws and regulations. I've touched on already the state surface water and groundwater code of uh, RCW 9003 for surface water, 9045, 9044, excuse me, for groundwater. But there are other state laws, and each, many of these 62 watersheds have their own separate in-stream flow regulations where they set aside minimum flows for these streams and tributaries in their river or in their watershed, which is part of a, a water right in and of itself. Uh, or it might have further restrictions for water use, but they're different for each watershed. So you have these legal, physical availability geologically, physical availability based on pre-annual precipitation, and physical availability based on the watershed, the supply of water, uh, surface water, and aquifer conditions in each of these different watersheds that really make water availability, physical water availability, a challenge to achieve in some areas. That's all the time we have for this month's episode of Water Law 101. Join us next month as we continue to explore water rights issues in our state.